Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody. On this episode of 30 with Murdy, a special look back at the 1961 Yankees. In January of 1991, WFAN aired a show commemorating the 30th anniversary of that great 61 Yankees team, which featured Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and the great home run race. A lot has been written and produced about that time, my personal favorite being Billy Crystal's 2001 film, 61, which you can find on HBO's platforms and is scheduled to air again in late September. Last year, while unpacking some boxes at my parents' house, I came across some cassette tapes of the 1991 show on WFAN, and through our magic of modern technology, I was able to digitize them and edit them down a bit to present them to you in this space. You will hear many voices that have long since left us, including the manager of the 61 Yankees, Ralph Houck, legendary announcer Mel Allen, players Johnny Blanchard and Tony Kubek. Thankfully, Kubek is still with us. And you'll also hear in its entirety the centerpiece of this entire show, a 17-minute interview with Mickey Mantle. Sadly, Maris had passed away a little over five years before this anniversary show. You'll also hear a special poem from the late PA man Bob Shepard, who also recorded player introductions for this 1991 broadcast. The host of the show was Howie Rose. Yes, that Howie Rose, who has been synonymous with the New York Mets for as long as any of us can remember. But Howie, at the time, was a talk show host on WFAN, and he was, in 1961, simply a New York kid who was a baseball fan. And a seven-year-old baseball fan in 1961 had only one team to root for, because three years earlier, the Dodgers and Giants moved west, and it was still another year before the Mets came into existence. And make no mistake, in 1961, seven-year-old Howie Rose was a Yankees fan who adored both Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and the game of baseball as he learned it from his father, Bob Rose, a diehard Yankees fan. So here now, before we listen to a 30-year-old show talking about the 30th anniversary of a magical baseball season in New York, here's a more recent conversation I had with Howie Rose earlier in 2021. This is our pregame show 
let's say, leading up to our main event which follows. Howie Rose on his young baseball life as a Yankees fan and his memories of hosting this show in 1991. Howie, the first thing I want to ask you is what does that year and that team mean to you? You have a long association with the Mets, but this is a year before the Mets came into existence. 1961 and the Yankees and that team, what did it mean to you? Well, it was baseball breast milk, really, because (laughs) that was my incarnation as a baseball fan. I was seven years old, and I absolutely fell head over heels with everything about the game, not the least of which, and perhaps most of which, was sitting next to my dad at Yankee Stadium, having him explain as much as a seven-year-old could understand about the game, some of the history. We went to the old-timers day that year, and As I remember, the tarp was on the field because it had been slick and rainy and they didn't want the old-timers playing the games. They didn't play. They just introduced them. I got such a kick out of my dad recognizing who the player introduced was going to be after just a minimum of words from Mel Allen, who was the MC. I was just so fascinated by all things baseball. But that was the year that I discovered the game and, and was weaned on it, if you will. So the stories of waking up every day to see, did Mantle hit a home run? Did Maris hit a home run? You were, you were living that every day. Yeah, and during the summer, I remember going to a few games, and it just seemed like it was part of the script that one or both of them had to hit a home run that day, and maybe more than one, particularly if it was a doubleheader, and I did go to a, double, a couple of doubleheaders that year. But my overriding memory of just how impassioned I was about the game and how my father got such a kick out of my learning it sort of at at his feet was very late in the season. We had been living in the Bronx with my grandparents. So there were a lot of us in an apartment that only had so many rooms (laughs) and, and very few televisions. So, but my dad and I had a deal. He would come into the room that I had And we would watch the beginning of the game, which was an eight o'clock start in those days. And he would let me watch for a half hour or an hour. And then he would make me turn around and face the wall and order me to go to sleep. He would turn the sound down on the television. And that's how I got to watch some of the games late in that season after school had started. Well, now Maris is on like he's, he's up to about 57 or 58, whatever it was. I forget the exact number, but we're going back and forth. My dad says, "Okay, bedtime. I turn around. I keep turning over to get a little sink at the TV and he'd bark at me, turn around, turn around. And we'd go through this exercise every night. <laughs> and finally, after about three or four rather belligerent orders to turn towards the wall, I fell asleep. Well, wouldn't you know it, shortly after I fall asleep, Maris hits a home run. And my dad gets so excited that he literally shakes me awake to show me Roger Maris rounding the bases after a home run. <laughs> That's a great memory. Uh, So did you consider yourself a Maris guy or a Mantle guy or both? Well, both, but Roger Maris was my first baseball hero because I'm left-handed, he was left-handed, and so there was kind of an instant recognition or an an instant attraction for me there. Um, But, you know, Mickey Mantle was Mickey Mantle, and it didn't take much of my father's explanation for me to absorb just how important he was to the Yankees and, as I got a little older, to their fans. So much so that, and I don't think this is atypical at all, of kids of my generation. 
But I remember playing Little League in the 1960s, 64, 65, 66, all perfectly healthy knees, all, however many of us were on our team. We all ran the bases with a limp. We all ran with the same gait that Mickey Mantle did. That was the the length of our idolization of him. And um, but but still, Roger was my first guy. So you you talk about the connection that you made with your dad over this on a you know basically nightly basis. My re- my own recollection is that I was probably nine or ten before the daily school conversations revolved around baseball and everything that was happening. Do you recall you know getting into this with your friends in the schoolyard and you know the what the sixty one season was becoming as it unfolded? Well, in 61, by the time we got to the fall, I was beginning second grade. And I don't really recall too many of my, quote, friends at that age, because, you know, I was seven, going on eight. And it's a long, long time ago. But, you know, we weren't, I wasn't quite hanging out in the schoolyard yet. That didn't happen until I got to Bayside, Queens. And it was a totally different upbringing from then on, which began in the summer of 62. And yeah, you know, at the schoolyard, all conversation at that age was about baseball or comic books. Girls came a few years later, but <laughs> but at that age, eight, nine, ten, you're just talking about baseball. You're flipping and trading baseball cards, and and the world revolved around how the Yankees and then the Mets were doing. So you got a chance to listen to I know some of this show after having done it the first time. Uh, when you did it, it was the 30th anniversary of the 61 Yankees. It is now the 60th anniversary of the 61. <laughs> sorry. Uh, of, the 60, <laughs> of the 61. How are you still 38? I don't get how that works. Uh, that's weird. Uh, I don't know, but I know Roger Maris is still about 28 or 29 as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm sure. As you listen back to the show or whatever parts of it you did, and I'll leave the Mantle interview out of it for a second. But what are some of the things that struck you about listening to these guys that you idolized as kids and were now interviewing professionally on WFAN? It's very complicated for me, Sweeney, because the baseline emotion that I had was that I wish my dad could have heard this. Because, again, it harkens back to my embryonic stage as a baseball fan. He gave me my baseball life. My mom gave me life. My dad gave me my baseball life. And he didn't live to see me accomplish anything in this business. And I just know what it would have meant to him to have seen me do what I've been able to do with certainly the Mets and the Rangers, but just to have the career that I've had, knowing that he was the impetus behind it all. So that was really the foundation of that entire night for me was, man, I wish my dad could have heard this. But, you know, it's a two-pronged thing because on the one hand, there's the part of me that was that seven-year-old kid that really was gushing over talking to Mickey Mantle and Ralph Houck and some of the others that we talked to that night. And then there was, you know, the guy who became a broadcaster and now had access to these people and just appreciated it from that standpoint, from now looking at it with an adult perspective and being able to ask questions that I wasn't equipped to ask when I was a kid, my curiosities were certainly much more flowered and, and blossomed than they would have been as a kid. But on many levels, I just so enjoyed every minute of that show. 
This show came about five, just a little over five years after Roger Maris passed away. He passed away in December mm-hmm. 1985. This show took place in January of 91. Uh, had you ever gotten an opportunity professionally to speak to Roger Maris? Yes. At an old timer's day when Roger finally was back in the good graces of the Yankees and perhaps more to the point, vice versa. And it wasn't really long before he died. There was an old timers game. You know what? It might have been as far back as 78. Okay. Because as I recall, 78 was the year that uh, Roger and Mickey Mantle raised the Yankees world championship pennant to the flagpole, up the flagpole at Yankee Stadium after they won the series against the Dodgers the previous fall. If I'm not mistaken, that was Roger Maris's first appearance at Yankee Stadium, new or old, since he left the Yankees following the 1966 season. And so I think he was at Old Timers Day that summer. And I have, you know, the four-page program that the Yankees Mm -hmm. would put out on Old Timers Day. I have one signed by Joe DiMaggio, Whitey Ford, Roger Maris, and Mickey Mantle. And I know that I had Roger sign something else a few years later. I I don't recall having much of a one-on-one with him. I might have done an interview or two with him in a scrum with a bunch of others around whatever locker he was at that old timer's day. But, yeah, I did have the chance to meet him. And I still have the bruises on my knees from the impact of when they were knocking while I was talking to him. <laughs> yeah. Do you recall the, the like the presence that you thought you were in there and maybe his demeanor? And like, you know, obviously he was very famously under a lot of stress in 61 dealing with reporters. Yeah. Now, all these years later, removed from that and kind of celebrated once again. Do you recall anything about the air about him? You know, I, I recall that he was very, very humble And he was genuinely happy to be back around the Yankees. And yet he seemed to me a little uncomfortable. And I think that's a window into how he felt about his massive fame and celebrity that accompanied the chase for Babe Ruth in 1961. But the overriding memory that I have of the two or three times I was around Roger Maris is that I was so committed not to being the fanboy that I felt and was when I watched Roger play, I just so badly wanted to have a minute privately where I could tell him what I'm sure thousands and thousands of people have told him after the fact was that, you know, Roger, I know I've read a lot of stuff. I was, I was there as a kid. I was impressionable, but Hey, Yankee fans didn't hate you, man. I mean, it might have been a case of rooting for Mantle because he was the born and bred Yankee as opposed to Maris, who in 61 was only there, what, his second year? What was, mm-hmm. was it 60, third, 61, his third, first yeah. two years? Mm-hmm. And he won the MVP both years. But I just wanted to try and convince him from my eyes and, and through the prism of a seven-year-old now growing up, Roger, man, you were my hero. I loved you. Man. I, don't, I can't imagine why people would have rooted against you or even worse. So I just, I just wanted him so badly to feel appreciated when it almost appeared that he wasn't sure that he'd be appreciated. You mentioned some of the guys that you got to talk to during this show. And, um, you know, we're going to hear from Ralph Halk, Tony Kubek, Johnny Blanchard, Mel Allen, Mickey Mantle, and a very short clip from Bob Shepard. You mentioned to me before we started that Mel Allen, talking to Mel Allen was a really big kick for you. Oh, well, Mel Allen was my very first broadcasting idol 
you know, Mel, I wanted to be Mel Allen yeah. in 1961. I was seven years old. And um, I always sort of dug announcers anyway, radio or TV. You wouldn't remember an old game show host named Bud Collier. Maybe you would. I don't know. Um, but Bud Collier did an old show called Beat the Clock and then To Tell the Truth. And mm-hmm. man, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, even as a five-year-old, you know? So I always had that fascination with broadcasting, but Mel tied it all together. Mel Allen was actually the first autograph that I ever got. No kidding. We were at Yankee Stadium, probably 61, maybe 62. And the press box and broadcast location at the old stadium was at the front of the mezzanine, which was the second level on the three-tiered stadium. And to go to the bathroom between innings, Mel or anybody else had to walk through the crowd. There were only about, I don't know, eight or ten rows to the mezzanine, as I recall. But you had to go to the bathroom at the back of the mezzanine with all the fans, you know. So my dad saw Mel get up and head to the bathroom. And he said to me, there's Mel Allen. Why don't you go get his autograph? I said, okay, what do I do? He said, here's the program. Here's the pencil or the pen, whatever he was keeping score with. He said, just say, Mr. Allen, may I please have your autograph? Give him the program and he'll sign it. Um, Well, I did. And I got back to my seat and I was a little ashamed and even nervous of how my dad would react. He said, did you get the autograph? I said, well, I think so. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I gave him the program. I did what you said, but all he did was sign his name. (laughs) I didn't know what an autograph was. I knew photograph. And so I thought, well, maybe he was going to draw a picture of himself or something. But I'd never heard the word autograph. And so I went back to that seat next to my dad thinking I'd blown it. But I wish I'd known where that autograph is today. You know, we've moved quite a few times since 1961. And I guess that Mel Allen autograph got caught up in in one of those moves. But that was a special memory for me. Well, it's funny. And and I'm going to show the difference in our generations. And I'm sorry, but Harry Callis is the same for me. And getting to know and meet Harry Callis... Uh, was a kick for me. So what I heard when Mel Allen is talking to you during this show, and he's saying, well, Howie, well, Howie, like I'm feeling like my conversations with Harry Callis and him just referring to me by name just in the press dining room or something like that, um, that's something that, you know, it takes, you know, you're at the time you did the show, you're 37. All of a sudden you're seven years old again, probably doing these. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't ever want to, and I would submit that you probably would not either ever want to lose that feeling, that spark when you're around one of those that you idolized as a kid, even as you get to know them and perhaps even become a friend later in life. I had that experience with Tom Seaver Mm -hmm. and a lot of the 69 Mets. I mean, I can refer to a good chunk of that team as friends, which is surreal, but you know, out of the mouth of, you know, a guy in his upper 60s now, well, it's different. They're guys. They're guys I know and guys I can talk to about things other than baseball. But I will tell you that when Tom Seaver, who I really did not know until he was retired, um, was broadcasting for NBC, he was at Shea Stadium in the press room in the late 80s when I had started doing Mets Extra, probably right around 1987 or so. I didn't really know Tom, but Somehow he needed to ask me a question. Somebody must have told him that I might remember something. And from uh, across the room, I was sitting with Kenny Albert, who was actually um, my associate producer of Mets Extra back in 1987. This is a long time ago now. And and Seaver kind of yelled from across the room, hey, Howie, let me ask you something. 
And I swear, I looked at Kenny and I was like that 14 year old girl who has a crush on the star athlete at high school. And I said to Kenny, wow, he knows my name. Yeah. And so I never want to lose the charge that I got through my body hearing one of my idols address me as a contemporary. And that's how it felt talking to Mel Allen that night. I heard that same feeling in your voice last summer when you replayed on FAN the Mickey Mantle interview. Um, and the fans will hear this in its entirety. It's about 17 minutes long. It's, it's basically the centerpiece of the 61 Yankees show that you did. How could it not be? Mickey calls in and, you know, again, hearing him say, well, Howie, hi, Howie. And hearing some of, you know, the little boy in your voice is what stood out to me listening back to that. And that little boy was just as evident listening to it nearly 30 years later as he was talking to Mickey that night. I just still get chills running up my back when I think about having spent any kind of time with Mickey Mantle because of what he meant to me when I was really, really young and just appreciate the odds against that ever happening, right? I mean, we all love whichever players we grew up loving, but how many of us get into a position where we have a chance to sit down and talk to them, much less interview them. So I, I've never, that's never lost on me. I guess I'm sort of introspective by nature, and that allows me to have a deep, deep appreciation for just how special those moments are. I want to go a little inside radio with you on this one and give fans a feel for what this show was actually doing the night of January 21st, 1991, when it aired. It was on a Monday night. The day before... The Giants have beaten the 49ers as the Niners are going for the three-peat. Matt Barr kicks the field goal in San Francisco, sends the Giants to the Super Bowl. They're going to play the Buffalo Bills. Do you remember where we were there, ironically? I know, because I heard the show, I know exactly where you were. You were at Mickey Mantle's restaurant. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You were not there producing it? No, I was still still about four or five months away from my internship. So that'll be a separate show, the 30th anniversary of my internship. We'll we'll talk about that one later on. Sign me up. January 20th, 91 is when the Giants beat the Niners. So Super Bowl week is about to commence. And on Monday night, which I assume this has been on the calendar for weeks, maybe even months, you've just dedicated to the 61 Yankees show. Um, And in the course of the the show, you hear updates on Joe Montana's health status because he got knocked out of that game and preparations for the Super Bowl. But Wasn't also, that the goal? I was just going to say about a week earlier is when Operation Desert Storm began. Mm-hmm. And during the course of your show, you also have to pause, I think, two or three times an hour for NBC News updates from the Gulf War. And wow. it all sounded very surreal listening back to it. I'm just, again, this is kind of inside radio, but going from the Giants Super Bowl uh, appearance to uh, the 61 Yankees show to NBC News updates, what do you remember about the, you know, the kind of traffic cop nature of this? And that's, as you say, inside radio. You do become a bit of a traffic cop because you've got to pay heed to network schedules so that we can hit those updates on time. And you're very attuned to what sometimes becomes the unfortunate reality of only having so much time to talk to a particular guest. I mean, I could have talked to Mickey Mantle all night. I could have (laughs) talked to Ralph Houck or any of those guys all night. But, you know, you are up against the mechanics 
of putting a radio show together and adhering to the structure of that. But that's that becomes rote, as I'm sure it is for you. You know, you, you have to do that and you do and and you just work around it. But that's a show that I know it was pretty close to five hours duration. Um, it could have lasted 45 hours and it still wouldn't have been enough for me. I, I want to go move past 61 for a second because um, the Mets come into existence in 62. And, you know, you can, I, I'm sure... Uh, give me every day's worth of history from 1962 to the present about the New York Mets. But I'm curious, as as you fell in love with the 61 Yankees for those first few years, 62, 63, 64, was your fandom side-by-side Yankees and Mets? Or oh, yeah. Did you, yeah, it was. Oh, sure. I, I, I Look, I went to Yankee games with my dad in part because – we also had family that lived very close to Yankee Stadium. My grandparents were just across the concourse. My aunt and uncle and cousin were right across the street at Girard Avenue. So, you know, we'd go to see them. I, I remember, uh, you know, we'd get later in the week and the Yankees were home on a Saturday afternoon. I'd say, hey, Dad, why don't we go see Grandma and Grandpa <laughs> on Saturday morning? Because I knew I didn't have to tug his arm to get him to walk over to the stadium and see the game. So that became almost ritualistic. But, yeah, I continued to root for the Yankees alongside the Mets because I was a kid, and it was like it was like having these two gifts, one team in each league. They didn't threaten each other, especially yeah. in the early days. You knew the Mets weren't going to be successful for a while, and the Yankees would take dead aim at winning the World Series every year until the mid-'60s, of course. And, um, you know, then as I got older, and obviously we got into the latter part of the 60s and things changed for the Mets in particular, um, you know, I was just so fully committed there, but not at the expense of, of liking the Yankees. And I, I never, while my dad was alive, could consider, could, I mean, we used to joke about it. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, he would make fun of me for being a Mets fan. And when the Yankees had hit the skids, I would, you know, kind of jab him as well. But it always came from a place of love. So, you know, you can't, I, I just, and Gary Cohen and I have this argument all the time. Not an argument, but he can't believe <laughs> that when I was 12, 13, 14, I could still go to Yankee games and like them and root for them because his friends were all Mets and only Mets. And I came from a wider cross section, I guess. Wow. I'd like to, I'd like to get you, Gary and Bob Huesler in the same room and have you guys fight that argument out. Um, I've got one more for you before we close, but before I get to that, I just want to ask you just in general, again, as you think about this show, does anything in particular kind of stand out to you again, besides, you know, uh, some of the things we talked about with Mel Allen and Mickey Mantle, uh, is there any other reflection that, you know, uh, 30 years after doing this show stood out to you? Just the enormity of the moment, given that those guys were my introduction to what's become such a significant part of my life. I couldn't, as I said earlier, become a fanboy on the air necessarily, but I just wanted them somehow, even if only subliminally, because I didn't want to gush on a show when I was trained to be an interviewer, to just let them know how much they meant to me and how much they helped shape my life. You know, I don't know that players can fully appreciate that. Like if I ever met Paul McCartney, for example, or Ringo Starr, I I would want to know if they could even begin to understand the level of not love, appreciation, or anything that's just those colloquial colloquial ways of of voicing what they mean, but I, I would I would want to know if they could ever kind of step back 
and have some sort of an understanding of the impact that they've made on so many. And on a smaller scale, that's how I feel about, in particular, the 61 Yankees. I, I just, I, I wish they could understand, never mind me, but for others. And I'm sure on some level they do, but just what they meant and how important they were in, in, in helping develop baseball fans and people, too. One of the reasons to look back on that team and that show is because the 61 Yankees are still one of the iconic teams in the history of the sport, one of the greatest teams in the history of the sport. Now, the 1998 Yankees won more games. Uh, the number 61 that Roger Maris set, it's been eclipsed many times by what we all know now are chemically oh, sluggers. Um, Broads. There you go. Um, but to, do we forget... Because all of those numbers, all those standards have been eclipsed, do we forget how meaningful 61 was just as a baseball season with those players? Uh, for someone who wasn't around you know, 60 years ago or even 30 years ago to hear the show about the anniversary, you know, if you're talking to someone who's 20, 25 years old right now and is a big baseball fan, how would you, uh, you know, summarize the impact of the 61 Yankees at that point? I would say very simply you had to be there. And I think a lot of it is contingent upon when you grew up. You know, there's a generation of baseball fans who were seven years old in 1998 who are going to look back on the 98 Yankees as the greatest team that was ever put together. But they can't relate to the 61 Yankees any more than I could relate to the 27 Yankees, you know. But now with the Internet and the ability to research just as much as you want to take the time to research you know, you just learn so much. Like my dad told me all about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and, and the rest of them. And then as years went by, I, I read books to the point where my teachers would tell me, would you read something else instead of baseball books? But I was just so immersed in it. And I would hope that kids that grew up around, say, the 98 Yankees feel the same way about 61 and for that matter, 27. So I would sum it up by saying you had to be there. But their impact, I think what... What I really get a kick out of in the hypothetical sense is trying to imagine, particularly when the edict came down from Ford Frick, the commissioner, that there would be a, quote, asterisk, which in purest form never existed, by the way, placed next to Roger Maris's name if he hit the 61 or more homers in more than 154 games. Remember now, 61 was the first year of the 162-game schedule, and that was a big part of the story in this age of Twitter and social media, could you imagine? I mean, we have those discussions about the Hall of Fame today. Yeah. Could you imagine what would have gone on on social media relative to whether Maris's 61 home runs, should they come in more than 154 games, would be legit and blow up the Internet? I, I would imagine it's a lot like the, you know, the Bonds-Clemens arguments now for Hall of Fame. It's kind of it almost becomes generational because a lot of the younger fans and younger voters kind of dismiss that era, whereas people who remember the game before that and show some reverence to the records before that stand on the other side of the argument. I would imagine it would blow up exactly, exactly along those lines. Absolutely. And I'm not sure it would necessarily be a forest I would want to wade through, but I think we all do just because that's the age we live in now. But it was particular to 1961 just as the Hall of Fame arguments you bring up are particular to today. But I wouldn't, frankly, have it any other way because that 1961 season will, frankly, resonate for the rest of my life. It fueled my passion for the game 
and ultimately to become a broadcaster, a baseball broadcaster. And so in a lot of ways, I owe my life and career to the 1961 Yankees. Because as I say, my mom gave me life, my dad gave me my baseball life, and they are forever intertwined. And now to the main event, the highlights from our January 1991 broadcast on WFAN honoring the 1961 Yankees. First up, Howie's chat with manager Ralph Houck, then 71 years old. He lived until age 90 before he passed in 2010. Houck, a Yankees backup catcher in the late 40s and early 50s, became a minor league manager. And in 1961, well, that was his first year as the major league manager after Casey Stengel was fired following the 1960 World Series loss to Bill Mazeroski and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Houck was nicknamed the Major. He was at one time a major in the U.S. Army, and he established a pretty good rapport with the players right away. You quickly became known as a player's manager. What specifically, at least in your mind, did that mean? Well, I, I think what it means is that uh, they had the respect of me uh, mainly because I respected them. I, I hadn't played much duty. Yogi was a pretty good catcher and hitter, and uh, I learned a lot setting down the bullpen. And, uh, and you know, uh, I just felt that uh, I wanted to treat players like I wanted to be treated. And uh, I think I gained that respect probably a little bit in the minor leagues and being a part of the ball club for so many years. Uh, I'd always been a Yankee, and most of the players knew me and, and knew that I respected their abilities and what they did uh, on the field and, and their families. And uh, I think they knew that I would uh, more or less treat them as I would want to be treated. And uh, so that was a big help to me. And I had, uh, as you said, been in the Army a long time, and I had seen a lot of people under stress. And I think probably that helped me with especially the players that weren't the regulars on the club. We had a great ball club, and, uh, and I knew that we had a great chance to win it. And uh, when you have people like uh, Maris and Mantle and Whitey who won 25 games that year, and, of course, our young players came through real big, like uh, Terry won 16 games, as I recall, and Ronnie Sheldon come up as a rookie and won 11. Bill Stafford had, I think, 14 wins. And, and of course, you couldn't go without mentioning Louis Arroyo of the pitching staff. Mm -hmm. So we had a great pitching staff. And the other thing that year that uh, was kind of tough for me was when I had to find a way to use both uh, Yogi and uh, and Howard. And a lot of people don't realize Yogi could play left field pretty good. He, had, you know, at one time was a, an outfielder. And, and Howard could too. So I, I used Yogi a lot in left field, and then sometimes I would use Howard. And, of course, we had Blanchard to back them up. And that gave us a tremendous pit, uh, catching staff, as well as giving us power in the outfield. And I guess another thing that you had to do that year, if such a thing sounds feasible, was to maybe restore the confidence of Mickey Mantle, who had struggled quite a bit in 1960. And uh, I know the reports that I'd read over the years said that Casey was uh, pretty tough on Mickey over the years and, and would prod him and goad him and try and uh, get him to do even more than he'd done the year before, no matter how much it was. But uh, you pretty much stroked Mickey and calmed him down and, and, and convinced him that what he was doing was just fine, didn't you? Well, I, I'm not too sure about that. I, I, the only thing I did with Mickey, I, I, in spring training, I said, Mickey, we, we've never had a captain on the Yankees, and, and we never did. But I said, you've got to be the leader of the club, and, and Mickey kind of was astounded at that. And, 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 of course, Mickey, in my opinion, led the club with his, his not only his great ability, but he was a such an unselfish player. Uh, I mean, you know, he could hit a couple home runs in a ball game, and if we got beat, well, you'd have thought that uh, he had a bad day. But he could strike out two times and not get a hit, and uh, 
if we won, you'd have thought he had a great day. And that sort of rubs off on players. In those days, uh, the players sort of policed themselves. We, we didn't have to get on anybody. We had only one thing in mind, that was to win. And if a guy didn't run the ball out or uh, try to break up the double play and things like that, well, the players would get on him. And, of course, when you got people like Mantle uh, and Maris on the club hitting all the home runs, the captain staff hit 50-some home runs, uh, and you got a guy like Richardson and Scourin and Kubek and Boyer and we just had a real good ball club, and, and we all stuck together, and it was a lot of fun. It's the greatest year that I've ever had in the 20 years that I managed in the big leagues. and To me, the greatest ball club that I've ever been associated with. And, of course, it was a, well, I guess we won 109 games that right. year. And, of course, the perception of that club was having won 109 games, that you were in control really from start to finish. But as you point out, you got off kind of slowly, and the Detroit Tigers stayed right with you right until Labor Day. Uh, were you worried if you'd ever shake them? Yeah, we really were. We didn't win it as easy as a lot of people think. Uh, as it turned out, Yogi made one of the great plays in the series against Detroit when they had really come close to us, and he threw Kalei down on second base from uh, when he was playing left field, and that sort of shut him down in that first game, and we went on to win all the ball games. And then I think they went into Baltimore or Washington, as I remember, and they lost three games in a row while we were winning three, and from then on, it, it was quite easy for us. But really, that whole September, the focus was on Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, and their pursuit of Babe Ruth's home run record. And I can remember reading an account not too long ago of a meeting that apparently took place between you and Roger down the stretch right after he had played about 150 games. And Roger apparently had been emotionally spent. I mean, he'd had it with the pressure from uh, the press and, and, and the criticism that he got. The fans, despite the pursuit of the record, were uh, booing him to an extent because they seemed to side with Mantle and his pursuit of the record. And if I, if I read properly, Roger was so burnt out, to use the current day vernacular, that he ended up in your office and just about broke down in tears from the pressure. Do you remember well, that? Well, happened down in Baltimore, but a lot of people don't realize uh, what a team player Roger was. He had came from the Midwest part of the country, and and uh, the press and they had gotten to him so much, and they were following him so closely and, and saying things, you know, if he had a, a bad day or something and maybe we won a ball game... Uh, in the last inning with a base hit or something, why the press would all go to Roger and not even go to the guy that got the base hit. And Roger was a team guy, and, and you know, he was a fellow that right in the midst of all time, uh, uh, when I think he had about 58 or 59 home runs, uh, he would lay down a butt on his own to beat a, a ball out to first base and things like that. And he would break up double plays, and he was a great defensive ball player. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, you know, he was a very unselfish fellow. And I, and I know that uh, a lot of people thought that I should have uh, moved uh, Maris uh, to fourth and Mantle to third. But we were winning ball games, and, and, uh, and that's what we had in mind. And a lot of people don't realize that, uh, that of course, Mickey did get 126 bases on balls. Uh, but still, he also, uh, Maris had 94. So that speaks for the power that was hitting behind him. Do you remember that incident the last uh, couple of weeks of the season? I guess it was, you said, in Baltimore, just around the time when he was closing in on number 60, uh, when he had just about had it. Didn't he, in fact, insist on taking a day or two off? Well, he had come to me and said, I don't want to play tonight. And, and I said that, uh, gee, Rog, I said, you know, all these people are in the stands just to see you, really. Are, the, the place was full, and, uh, and, of course, he was right in the race. And as I recall... Uh, he said, well, uh, you know, I just don't feel like I can make it. I said, I'll tell you what you do. I said, just uh, 
let me keep you in the lineup. You go to right field, and uh, when you come in, I'll just tell him that you know you're you're sick, and I had to take you out of the game. Well, he went along with that, and but he never did come to tell me to take him out of the game. <laughs> I believe that's the night he hit the sixtieth, as uh, I remember. And that would have been at Yankee Stadium off of Jack Fisher on the 26th of September in 1961. Did, did the pursuit of the record become a distraction for you, too, as a manager? Well, I felt bad about the way the things that Roger had to go through. Uh, and it was distracting to a point with the ball club. I mean, there's no question about that. And yet... Uh, we had one thing in mind, and that was to win the pennant, and that's all that Roger really was thinking about. And I, I know it was a great relief off his shoulders when that was all over and when we had, you know, sensed the pennant. Tony Kubek was a 25-year-old all-star shortstop in 1961. He would go on to become a Hall of Fame broadcaster. In 1991, the 55-year-old Kubek told Howie that Ralph Houck had established himself as the manager well early in the spring. Ralph came under... Uh into spring training under tremendous pressure after he got to the job, and I think what Ralph did was, and I'm not saying he got it from the military, but uh, but but he used that chain of command to a degree, because he went right to Mickey and said, man, you're my leader. It's almost like a platoon leader, and then he went to White and said, you're running this pitching staff along with Johnny Sane, and what what, what Johnny Sane tells you to do, uh, you know, and the rest of the guys will follow, and it just, it just was, he had people in various areas that he confided in, and he didn't know, he was tremendous, I thought, Ralph with the players who weren't playing. Uh, the guys, and it was a team that uh, was relatively injury-free that year in 61, and a lot of guys played a lot of games, 150, 150-plus, 150 because it was a young team, although it had a lot of experience, 24, 25, 26-year-old guys, some of whom had been in the big leagues for four or five years, and, and came up very early. It was a great array of talent, a team that knew how to play the game. But Ralph just had uh, the sense to take the pressure off the players and put it on his own shoulders and also keep the bench players and the second-line players so happy. And, and those are the kind of guys you need over the long haul, as everybody knows. But, but Ralph really had the pressure, and then Mickey then just picked up everything because Roger got off to such a slow start, as everybody knows. In fact, they thought something was wrong with his eyesight after his MVP year with 39 home runs in 1960. And they thought, gee, something's wrong with his eyesight. And Mickey just had a tremendous start. And all of a sudden, here comes Roger, then started hitting the third spot with Mickey behind him and then Yogi and Allie and... Moose and all the other, uh, the power in the lineup, and Mickey set the stage along with Hawk, and uh, I guess that's what high-paid uh, true leaders do, and everything just fell into place and followed. Hypothetical questions are always yeah. impossible to answer, but given what you've said about Hawk and what so many of the players who played under him have said about him, would it have been almost impossible for Maris to have carried on through to the 61 home runs, through all of that tremendous pressure down the stretch, had Houck not been the manager and a different sort of person had been running the ball club? Well, I don't know if the team could have done what it did if Casey had been there. And that is not a knock at Casey because he was a great man. He was before his time. But Casey liked the spotlight. And there were some players who maybe didn't care that Casey was getting the spotlight, and they weren't. And the same thing exists today. I mean, the players want the spotlight. They want the attention. Uh, they want the media coverage rather than their manager. And uh, I really thought that, that our 1960 team might have been better than our 61 team. Really? Some people say in the history, you know, will argue this forever and never find an answer, that the 61 team was one of the greatest of all time. But I thought our 60 team had more depth because it was, it was before the first expansion of two extra teams. We lost some of that bench strength in 61. But uh, I, I think, you know, Ralph got so close to Roger at certain stages when, when, when Ralph knew that Roger needed him. 
when things were building up and the media presses were building up and, and Fort Frick had put, and it really wasn't an asterisk, but that special consideration in the right. record book because of the additional games in the season and stuff. And then whenever, you know, I mean, the story's been told in, in various books and publications, when the things really heated up and Roger came in uh, to ask for an off day, uh, you know, Ralph consoled him and Roger's hair was falling out, he had the rash and everything else building up. Then Mickey got hurt, he didn't have to really, the, although he still had Yogi and Ellie, a lot of other guys behind him, he still didn't have you know, Mickey's protection behind him in the fourth slot, you know, Mickey came up to 54 home run year, but, but I think Ralph really did. He, he just kept egging Roger on a little bit more, trying to put in some historical perspective what Roger was trying to do with the Ruth record, even though there was so much adverse publicity. I think Roger appreciated it, and later on, uh, you know, there were a lot of things written that, uh, that Ralph and Roger didn't get along once Ralph became the general manager, and you know, there was the injury to Roger's wrist. Right. And I think for a while there was a degree of animosity. But it really was more because these were two very strong individuals, strong-minded, two stubborn individuals, two guys who, who wouldn't go that extra step to try and make it uh, make up for, for some of the difference of opinion. But uh, before Roger died, he and Ralph did get together, and I think they smoothed that over and they understood what was really going on. So, yeah, Ralph was very important to Roger, as Roger was for Ralph and the 61 Yankees. You know, I read a passage in Peter Golenbach's book, Dynasty, on uh-huh. the Yankees of the era from 49 to 64, and Roger apparently, right down the stretch of that 61 season, feeling crushed by the pressure of all of the newspaper men and the television cameras and the magazine writers, finally said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the quote right in front of me, but apparently he said something to the effect of, hey, you guys are asking me the same questions after every game. Why don't you talk to Kubek? He plays great every night and never gets his name in the paper. Given what you told us before about not showing up on Red Barber's show, uh, were you kind of hoping that they didn't come your way? Well, uh, do you remember that? Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, in fact, I, a fellow named Terry Pluto, a former baseball writer with the Cleveland Indians, and now covers a lot of NBA basketball for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He and I wrote a book together, and we interviewed all the players and families and everything else. Uh, and I'm not doing the same as to publicize the book, but it was called 61, but the story was written in there. And, and it wasn't just Roger that did that, because up until the last oh, week or two weeks when Mickey got hurt, you could just see, no matter what the outcome of the game, whether we were beaten, and we didn't lose too many games that year, as you know, whether Whitey was going for 20-25 or what it was with a Royal, another save, whether uh, a young Rollin Sheldon who won 14, or Stafford who had a had a good year for us. Ralph Cherry won 16. It was always a beeline that last month, right, to Roger and or Mickey's locker. And so many times uh, you could hear either Roger or Mickey or Tommy say, look, go to Elliot, go to Tony, go to Bobby. They won the game tonight. But the big question of the day was, hey, look, you know, why did you hit a home run or why didn't you? Or, or what's going on? Are you tired? And they were the story. But they kept deflecting the attention uh, so much. And it really was the best thing for team morale because not that we wanted the publicity, but there were a lot of good players on that ball club, and Roger and Mickey knew it, and Roger and Mickey knew that their home runs weren't always winning close ball games. That so many times it was a great release job by a Royal or a great pitching performance by Whitey or one of the other pitchers I mentioned, or a great defensive play by Cleet or somebody else getting a key hit or a walk to keep something going. So, uh, yeah, and little things that Mickey and Roger did in the heat of all this was they never lost sight of the fact that we were in a pennant race. And you got to remember, the Baltimore Orioles uh, led the league that year in Team ERA, even though we had a good pitching staff. And mm. the Detroit Tigers actually scored more runs than we did that year. I mean, you look at the Calavitos and the K-Lines and the Cashes and some of the players they had. And, of course, they had Larry and they had Mossy and some of the other 
outstanding pitchers, too. But I think uh, Roger and Mickey both realized, and I guess that was the leadership of Hulk. In his subtle way, he wouldn't let any one personality or any one story get put ahead of the team effort. And I think it, it, was, a, it was a bunch of guys that really understood how to play the game. Sure, there was a lot of, a lot of talent, but knew how to play the game and enjoyed coming to the ballpark, not just to play the game, but enjoyed coming to the ballpark because we enjoyed being with each other. Johnny Blanchard was a 28-year-old catcher and outfielder in 1961 who hit 21 home runs in just 243 at-bats, including four pinch-hit home runs. 30 years later, Blanchard spoke to Howie about his friend Roger Maris, the reluctant superstar, a trait most noticeable in that famous scene when he was pushed out of the Yankee Stadium dugout for a curtain call after his record-setting 61st home run, which came on October 1st against Boston right-hander Tracy Stallard. The people almost demanded that he come back out on the field to tip his hat. And, uh, of course, Rog being the kind of uh, oh, laid-back, quiet-to-himself type guy, uh, we forced him out of the dugout. So, get one, get out there and tip your hat. Well, Jeezy was, <laughs> if you knew Rog, it would be there, you'd understand, but uh, to get him out there, and then finally he did. He finally went out and tipped his hat and, very quickly jump back in the dugout. And I know that was about the last thing he was comfortable doing as well. Were the, were the players um, oh, oh, not so much aware but respectful of Roger Shinus, or did, did some of the guys on the team uh, kid him about it to the point of making him further uncomfortable than the press had already made him? Oh, no, no. Nobody ever brought it up to him. Uh, well, that's just the way he was. I mean, he was uh, a, a rather... Uh, Oh, quiet individual, wanted to be left alone. Uh, I think Rogers, one of Rogers, uh, the big problems with him, uh, uh, he was he, he was such a great ball player that uh, along with that and along with the 61 home runs, went a lot of fame and fortune. Well, he gave up a lot of fortune and uh, because he didn't really know how, Howie, he didn't really know or didn't want to accept uh, the fame that he, he he had coming to him. He would rather, he's a rather quiet person from that standpoint, uh, and he didn't really know how, Raj didn't really know how to accept it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's difficult, uh, guys say, oh boy, I would have taken advantage of it, and oh, baloney, he, this guy was harassed all, especially the last six weeks of the season. He'd gone through literally hell uh, mentally and, and physically, and uh, when that season was over, he turned down—he uh, turned down half a million dollars in appearances. He just went back to independence and uh, closed the door, and that was it. It's almost hard to fathom that in those days someone would turn down that much money, but evidently that was the essence of Roger. Oh yeah, that was him, Howie. He just—he uh, didn't—he didn't go for uh, all the fanfare and everything, and as a result. Uh, I think there were a lot of writers that couldn't accept that. Mel Allen was a Hall of Fame broadcaster for the Yankees. In fact, he and Red Barber were the first ever recipients of the annual Ford Frick Award in 1978. The legendary radio and TV broadcaster was a familiar voice to a later generation as the voice of the TV show This Week in Baseball. But in 1961, he had been a Yankees broadcaster for over 20 years. It was a different era, and he grew close to both Mantle and Maris. In January 1991, Allen was nearly 78 years old, and he gave Howie a little glimpse into old-fashioned relationships between broadcasters and players. We used to travel with a team by train. 
and the ball club had their own three cars, two sleepers and a diner. And on occasion, those three cars might be shifted from one train uh, uh, to another. For example, if you got into an extra inning game, uh, then the road secretary would call the railroad supervisor and say, don't put our cars on the Broadway Limited or, the, you know, whatever. Yeah. The 20th Century Limited or whatever train it was and put it on the next train. Then as time went on, of course, we got to flying, but we also flew with the team. And so you uh, were in the habit of getting very close to the ball players. That's where you learned most of the things that helped you out when you were describing the game. Now, I knew Roger real well and his wife and, of course, uh, at that time, little kids and watched them, in a sense, grow up and saw them when they had, uh, after Roger passed away, and they had that wonderful memorial at St. Patrick's Cathedral. We used to talk about, uh, during the season, there was a Broadway play. Uh, and uh, we tied that in to the uh, Mantle and Maris home run derby. Mm -hmm. uh, Dial M for Murder was the name of the Broadway show. Mm -hmm. And it's only natural. You know, uh, you as a great broadcaster yourself, and I enjoy you very much. Well, that's nice. Thank you. Uh, you know, just one day it popped out of your mouth. Uh, Dial M for Murder. Maris and Mantle. And, uh, <laughs> of course, sounds a little corny perhaps today, but in those days it sort of fit that situation. With one guy hitting so many homers and the other one matching him until late in the season when Mickey had the flu early in September and uh, he had to lay off a number of ball games, so he wound up with 54. But the thing that I remember that the two of them back-to-back -back hit a total of uh, 51, 61, 54, and, uh, 115. 15. But also, the fifth guy in the batting order was a guy named Moose Scourin. Right. And uh, he hit 28. So that uh, I don't recall ever, of course, I hadn't checked everything in my lifetime, but I don't remember three guys following one another in the batting order, hitting something like 133 home runs. The team as a whole set the record, and you check me now on this, it's been tied since, or exceeded. Um, the team as a whole right here hit 240 home runs. Yeah, that's the best that's ever been done. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, if you want to, uh, confide in us 30 years after the fact. I guess the statute of limitations is up. Were you pulling for one or the other, Maris or Mantle, as opposed no, to the other? Uh, I, would, I, would, I would have to say this. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. After all, the two guys, he, he, I knew Mantle longer than uh, I did Maris because sure. Maris had been traded to the Yankees from Kansas City by way of Cleveland, if I can put it that way started out with the Indians. The Indians traded in Kansas City. And then his third stop was with New York. But uh, I knew Mickey as a rookie in 1951. 
The Yankees had traded spring training places with the Giants. The Giants were training in Phoenix, and the Yankees at that time in St. Petersburg. And the owners of the two clubs got together, said, let's swap training sites for one season. And in Mantle's rookie year, the Yankees trained in Phoenix, Arizona. Mickey had played uh, shortstop class D and C, and he made an awful lot of errors because he, while he had a great arm, he kept throwing the ball past the first baseman. He was wild. But anyway, during spring training, and he was just 19 years old, he impressed Casey Stengel to the extent that Casey said, we got to keep that boy. See, Joe DiMaggio had uh, made it known that after the 51 season, he was retiring. He'd had trouble with a bone, bone spur in his right heel for about three years. and Joe didn't want to continue playing unless he could be Joe DiMaggio and not just a shadow of his, of his uh, stature. So the Yankees were looking for somebody, of course, to... Uh, eventually take over in center field. And Casey watched this youngster, and he, he said to the Yankees' front office, George Weiss was the general manager then, and George said, we're going to farm him out to AAA for one season so he can learn to play the outfield. And Casey said, that boy hits balls over buildings. Now we'll forget that expression. <laughs> and he did. And he was a switch hitter, and he had this great speed. He could go from home to first, I think, in 3.1 seconds. Batting left-handed and batting right-handed is 3.2. Or it could have been 3.2 and 3.3. But it, in any case, that's how fast he was. I remember him bunting, and sometimes he'd bunt too hard as he was in the learning process. Right back to the pitcher. The pitcher's thinking to himself, well, that's an easy out. Took his time feeling the ball, raising his arm up to throw to first base, and then was stunned to see Mantle bearing right down on first base. and He had such tremendous speed. But anyway, he stayed with the Yankees until, uh, you know, once around the league, they sort of find out your weaknesses, and uh, he began, began to strike out quite a lot, too much. And so they sent him down to AAA for about six weeks, and he worked his way back. He played right field anyway, and then when DiMaggio retired, he took over in center field. And he, and then when Maris came to the Yankees a few years later, there was a lot of feeling on the part of some fans, or some feeling among a lot of fans, that there was some ill will between the two fellows. But that was not true at all. In fact, one season, uh, when Mickey and his family could not move to New York until after the school uh, period ended, they decided not to come to New York from Dallas. And uh, Maris's family did not come to New York, and they, they shared uh, living quarters. And they were good friends. And... Uh, of course, you, you know, you just go back to Maris hitting third in the lineup and Mantle fourth. And uh, it was a great one-two punch.
Mel, as you know, Mantle stopped with 54 home runs, right. and Maris continued on to hit the 61, but uh, somehow you found yourself in the middle of a controversy because, uh, at least according to the story, Mickey had not been feeling well and apparently wasn't getting better, and so you had taken him to your personal physician, and he got a... What no, was I, I know what you're, you're talking about, Maury Allen's book. What, was that... Uh, no, 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 no. That was... Uh, as a matter of fact, we were playing the Red Sox. Mickey had the flu... We were in Baltimore, and he had him played some games. We got to Boston. He still was battling uh, the flu, and uh, our plane was delayed from Logan Airport to New York, and I had to do a rehearsal with Perry Como, believe it or not, I was on his show on a Sunday night. I didn't know you sang, Mel. I didn't. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a pre-World Series show. And it's just a little sports spot on there. I had done the Perry Como show as a staff announcer uh, a few years before on radio. But anyway, Mickey suddenly gets on the plane. They they had transferred me from uh, a now defunct airline, the recent, very recent vintage, to American. And in a few minutes, uh, he came on. He, he sat down. He, he wasn't feeling well. We got off the plane, and I had to get down to this rehearsal. And he mentioned the fact that he hadn't been feeling any better than he had most of the month of September. And uh, I never gave it a thought uh, in the beginning of the conversation, because uh, you always call... Uh, front office they got their own doctors mm -hmm. and uh, but he felt so very ill I told him to call me at 10 o'clock and I told him where I would be at this rehearsal and we tried to scare up somebody and, and that's, that's all the involvement I was in and the front office talked to me about it and I explained it to their satisfaction and then, what, and then he ended up going to the doctor getting a penicillin shot and that's yeah, what and caused that's right. Uh, but he was supposed to have gone back and didn't. And uh, an infection set in. And now the highlight of WFAN's 1961 Yankees special from January 1991, Howie Rose's conversation with Mickey Mantle. Once again, to set the scene for you, this was one day after the Giants beat the 49ers in San Francisco to advance to Super Bowl 25. A watch party had been held at Mickey Mantle's restaurant on Central Park South, just up from the plaza. Also of note, Operation Desert Storm. The U.S. involvement in Iraq began only days earlier. So our all-sports radio station was airing Gulf War updates twice an hour, including one just before Howie welcomed in, number 7, 59-year-old Mickey Mantle. News from the Gulf on the hour, 20 minutes and 40 minutes past the hour on WFAN. I'm Howie Rose. I told you we had a big surprise. Let me give you a hint. Barber back with a fastball hit deep to center field. That one's going to be out of here. Dead center, way back there. And it's a home run for Mickey Mantle. A tremendous home run to straight away center field. Man, did he hit that one. the first hit off Steve Barber, Mickey Mantle's 32nd home of the year. And for Mantle, it gives him 78 runs batted in. And he really hit that dead center. 
That ball was well over 450 feet. It's 410 to the wire fence. One hop hit off the scoreboard. And of course, the scooter, Phil Rizzuto, describing Mickey Mantle's 32nd home run of that 61 season that we've been talking about all night. Mickey en route to 54 homers, 128 RBIs, and we are delighted to welcome Mickey Mantle. How you doing tonight, Mickey? Hi, Ali. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I guess you recognize your buddy the scooter, huh? Oh, yeah, he, he was great. Uh, you know, after I, after I quit playing, I uh, was with him and Bill White for a while, and uh, that was quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'll tell you what, it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people that long after you quit that you'd wind up in the booth, but you actually seemed to enjoy it. I'm almost oh, a... it was, that was, I think that's probably the most fun I ever had was with Phil and Bill. Did, did uh, they? They, was, they were so much fun. I was so uh, country and everything, you know, and then uh, they, taught, they taught me a lot, you know, like what not to say and what to say. <laughs> I guess most people probably forget, right after you quit playing, you actually did a little broadcasting for NBC, didn't you? Well, my first year uh, in 1969, I, I retired in uh, the spring of 69, and then I, I went with uh, uh, Kubek and Gowdy, you remember? Mm -hmm. And uh, the first, uh, <laughs> the first uh, World Series was the Mets against the uh, Orioles. Do you remember that? Yeah, very well. And I picked the Orioles four straight. That took care of your broadcasting career. beat them four out of five or something like that. So anyway, uh, people don't really listen to me very much about what is, what's going to happen anymore. Well, that's all right. We don't mind talking about what happened back in 1961. That's what we've been focusing on all night long. And that, of course, the year that you and Roger Maris chased after Babe Ruth's home run record. And uh, I'm just curious. It's 30 years after the fact now. But do, do you still think about... The events, not so much of that whole season, but the turmoil that Roger went through the last couple of weeks, and uh, even the injury that you suffered that kind of short-circuited your run at, at Babe Ruth. Oh yeah, I think. Well, first of all, I'd like to say this, Howie. Uh, I have a book coming out uh, this summer. It's called My Favorite Summer, 1956. The Triple That's Crown. When I had the Triple Crown. Yeah, but I, I really believe that the best team. And I, when I first come to the Yankees in 1951, I played on a team that won five straight World Series. That was with Allie Reynolds and Vic Rashi and Eddie Lopat and Whitey Ford was the pitchers. And we had Hank Bauer and Gene Woodling. Joe DiMaggio was still there, Yogi. I mean, it was a great team. And uh, in 1956 was uh, probably one of the best teams that I ever saw in my life. But I really believe that the best team I ever played on was 1961 Yankees. Uh, Roger was, you know, when you think of Roger Maris, you think about home runs. You don't, you, people don't realize what a great team player he was, you know. And, and we used to get a lot of bad write-ups about that me and him was fighting, you know, or we didn't like each other or stuff like that. Right. Uh, Billy and Whitey, Billy Martin and Whitey Ford was probably been my best friends I ever had on the Yankees. They were like brothers to me, you know. But I, I roomed with Roger that year in 1961, and I don't think me and him ever had an argument. I mean, he would come in the morning sometimes. Uh, you know, he he didn't indulge and do stuff like I did sometimes. And uh, <laughs> he would come in in the morning sometime and bring me a cup of coffee and, and hit me in the head with the paper. He'd say, hey, Rumi, wake up. We roomed together in New York. You, you know, on the road, you have to room with whoever they put you with. But 
but on a, when you're at home, you can room with whoever you want. And me and Roger roomed together that year, and uh, people were saying that we was fighting all the time. That was the farthest thing from the truth. Roger was one of the best. Uh, uh, I get. I don't know how to. I, I guess best teammates that I ever had. Uh, he was. I wasn't as close to Roger as I was with Yogi and Billy and Whitey and some of the other guys that I grew up with. You know, like when I come to the Yankees, I was 19 years old. These other guys were like my family, you know. And then Roger come along. He, me and him was great friends, but I don't guess I could say he was like my brother, like Billy and Whitey was. You know what I mean? Sure. But uh, we never did have an argument. He would come in and hit me in the head with the paper, and he'd say, hey, Rumi, wake up. Uh, we're having another fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, I've read enough about you and Billy Martin and Whitey Ford and your exploits together to get the feeling that you weren't a, a bad practical joker in your time. So knowing how the press figured, or at least made up to a certain extent, that you and Roger were feuding, did you ever do anything to kind of egg them on a little bit, just as a practical joke? Oh, well, yeah, we would uh, we would kid around a lot, you know. We'd act like, you know, especially if we won a game, you know. We would act like, uh, yeah, I won the game. No, you didn't, I won the game, you know. Uh, sometimes we would hit maybe two home runs a game, you know. I mean, uh, he hit 61 home runs that year, and I hit 54. So we had a lot of good days together. And the other players, I'll tell you, can I tell you something? Sure. The other players made it so good for us that you couldn't believe it, like Tony and Bobby Richardson and how, even Hauk and uh, the coaches, uh, Whitey, all the guys, they come in and they say, hey, what the m and M boys do today? You know, they they make a joke out of it instead of uh, instead of uh, saying, you know, like Jesus Christ, you know, uh, I won the game with a home run today, and uh, the M and M boys got all the headlines. You know, that's right. You were their meal ticket too. Yeah, the, the interest- and, uh, it really helped out a lot, especially after you know I didn't play the last couple of weeks, and uh, after I dropped out of the race, uh, they would they helped Roger a lot. I mean uh, that the uh, First of all, I would like to say this, okay? I think the 61 team was the best team I ever played for. And uh, that infield with Cletus, Tony, Bobby, uh, Moose, uh, our catchers, Yogi, Johnny Blanchard, I understand you just got through talking to Blanchard. Right. I didn't get to hear. I'm in Key Biscayne, Florida right now. I'm calling in from Long Distance. So I didn't get to hear your whole show. I wish I could have. But, uh, Elston and Yogi and Johnny Blanchard hit over 60 home runs that year. Nobody knows that, you know? I mean, we had, there was so much other, uh, Whitey won 25 and lost four. Uh, Lou Arroyo uh, was, I don't know how many games he saved. Well, he saved 29 and he was 15 and 5, so obviously he had a huge year. Uh, I think uh, Whitey won something that year, and he wanted to give half of it to Louie because he saved him about 10 or 12 games. But we had a great bunch of guys, you know. It was unbelievable. And, and it was interesting to see... And I really see... do believe that was the best team I ever played for. Well, it was interesting, Mickey, how the fans responded to both you and Roger Maris going after the home run record because they had actually booed you right through the 1960 season, the uh-huh. previous season. Yet in 61, as things took shape and you and Maris are going after the record, you suddenly started to receive standing ovations every time you came to the plate. Roger was the guy that got booed. Did, did that bother you just not so much for what it was doing to Roger, but the way the fans had sort of turned around and all of a sudden come to your side after really giving you a hard time the year before? 
Well, it didn't bother me. It made me feel good, except for the fact that they kind of took it out on Rod. You know, I mean, uh, he wasn't a bad guy. He was probably one of the best team guys I ever played with. I mean, he. Uh, when you think of Roger Maris, all you think about is uh, 61 home runs, right? Uh, Roger was one of the best all-around baseball players I ever saw. I mean, he could field. He was a great base runner. He's faster than everybody thought he was. And he never he never made a bad throw. He was in the game all the time, and he never made a mental mistake. Well, we talked a lot tonight about the play he made in the ninth inning of the seventh game of the 62 series. That's right, holding uh, Willie. Yeah, well, Willie hit the ball, and he That's held right. Matty Alou at third. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the home run race in, in 61 with you and Roger chasing after Babe Ruth, Roger obviously had a lot of problems dealing with the stress down the last couple of weeks of the season because the, the reporters were just swarming him to death, really, over the last, I guess, month of the season, as it turned out. Um, you, of course, having gotten hurt, didn't play those last two weeks, but was it something of a relief for you to be away from some of that pressure, or were you really excited and uh, motivated about taking a run at the record well, yourself, too? First of all, it wasn't a relief for me to be out of it. Hell, I was still in it when I when I went out of the... What happened, it was stupid on my part. I went to a doctor on my own, and uh, I got a bad shot. Uh, I had a, I had a, you know, like a bad cold or something like that. And I was told to go to this guy, and uh, I could get well in a day or two, and I'd be right back. Well, it didn't work that way. I got a bad shot. I had to go to the hospital and get my uh, hip cut out or drained or something like that. So I missed the last couple of weeks. But whenever I left, I was only like two two home runs behind. And uh, it's, it's not like that I just fell out of the race. I just uh, I couldn't play no more. But I was still pulling uh, for Roger and uh, the Yanks, and uh, there was just nothing I could do about it. When you think back on that season, all the way to spring training, Ralph Houck is a rookie manager now, and um, we had Ralph on a little bit earlier tonight as well, and uh, he was talking about how he just told you really from the beginning in spring training that you were going to be a leader and he wasn't going to name you the captain per se because since Lou Gehrig, the Yankees hadn't had a captain. Mm-hmm. But was, was there something about the way Ralph Houck handled you that you responded to better than how Casey handled you? Well, Casey uh, was like my father. I mean, my dad died in 1951, and from 1951 until uh, Casey left, he was still like, he called me son, and I'm, you know, I felt like he was my dad. But when Ralph came along, he, he just he just got me off to the side, and he says, Hey, Mick, I'm going to tell you something. The way you go is the way the team is going to go. He said, I'm going to tell you what else I'm going to do. He said, I'm not going to hit. I always hit third in front of Yogi. Right. And I always got all the good pitches. <laughs> They're not going to want me to pitch to Yogi, right? So then uh, Ralph said, uh, I'm going to put you hit fourth and let Roger hit third because you can hit both ways. You know, you can hit right and left-handed both, and I think that it will help the team more. And, of course, you know, I'm, I don't, that's fine with me. You know, if, as long as we win, that's all I care. And uh, it did it did help. I mean, he was smart in doing that uh, because, uh, well, I think, I don't, I don't think Roger got a, uh, intentional pass that whole year uh, as, as far as I know uh, and you know they're not first of all like I said before you know our catchers hit 60 home runs that year uh, Elston and Yo 
And Johnny Blanchard Johnny combined Blanchard, for 64 between the three Moose, of them. Moose back there hits uh, 28 or something like that, over 100, or right around 100 RBIs. Uh, it wasn't just me hitting behind Roger. It was a bunch of guys hitting behind Roger that could play. And we hit 240 home runs that year. So uh, I really believe uh, when I joined the Yankees uh, in 1951, they had already won two World Series, and then we won three straight more. So that was five straight World Series, the team that I joined. And then uh, we lost in 54, and we won five more. So... Uh, it's unbelievable the teams that I played with, but I I really do believe I've got a book coming out this year in nineteen uh, my favorite summer nineteen fifty six that's when I I did the triple crown thing right, right. and I got a book coming out and uh, that was my favorite summer nineteen fifty six because it finally proved that I could do some of the things that Casey Stingle thought I could do, but. I still believe that the team in 1961 that hit 240 home runs uh, and had the great infield, a good pitch, Whitey won 24 and lost, uh, 25 and lost four, uh, Louis Arroyo, uh, Ralph Houck, I think was a, uh, as good a manager as ever been in the majors. Uh, we had just had a great team, and uh, I think that's the best team I ever played for. Did you enjoy uh, the rivalry that people thought you had with Roger Maris down the last couple of months of that season? Did you get a kick? I don't like to call it a rivalry. Well, I'm saying the writers called I it a rivalry. I didn't anything to beat him. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I'm getting at. They think I wouldn't want to beat him. Well, that's what I'm getting at. I mean, did you enjoy it to the point where it motivated you even oh, more than you would have been? I, on think, a... I think it motivated Rods, too. You know, I mean, uh, hell yeah, we were roommates and we were good friends, but... Uh, you know, if I played him in a game of gin, I wanted to beat him in gin, you know, uh, much less the 61 home runs. How, I mean, you don't want to lose nothing. I, if you're a good competitor, you're a good competitor, and I am. How did the other guys on the ball club get up or, or sort of caught I up? Don't in think, I don't think the other guys had a favorite. Uh, the other guys, what really helped Roger and myself both was that the other guys made a joke out of it. They would come in the clubhouse. The first thing you'd hear somebody yell say, "Hey, what did M and M boys do yesterday?" You know, I mean, they make a they made a big joke out of it. It was it was uh, they were so good. Uh, like Tony Kubek could hit a home run, right? Mm -hmm. And the next day in the paper, it wouldn't say Tony Kubek hit a home run in my opinion to win the game. It would say what me and Roger did. And uh, they uh, instead of getting mad about it or feeling bad about it. They would just make a joke out of it, you know, and it was really good. Uh, they was they was great. Well, who did you do the book with that's coming out? Uh, Phil Peppy. Okay, and that's coming out this summer, you say? It's coming out in April. We're going to have the uh, 1956 uh, bunch of guys uh, down in Atlanta. We're going to have we're going to open up the uh, thing with a, a book review or something. I don't know. I, yeah, can't, promotional I, mean, I tour. can't tell you really what's going to happen that late, but <laughs> it's going to be, it'll be fun. All right, that's another anniversary, because that's 35 years now since the Triple Crown year. Yeah. Mickey, I'm glad you took some time with us tonight. Thanks so much. I'm sorry I called in late, but uh, I had to, you know, I'm on business down here, and I had to uh, go out to dinner, and uh, everybody come on over uh see me and Bill Mazur over at the restaurant. We'll do that. In fact, we were there yesterday, too. Is that right? Yeah, we're there but doing it. The guys in town. I'm sorry. 
Are any of the guys from the 61 team in town? No, we just did a special show during the football game. And oh. you'll be happy to know the place was packed. Well, I'll tell you something else. I was as happy as everybody there was that the Giants won. Yeah, people are still buzzing about it here, you can believe. <laughs> Mickey, thanks. I was talking to Bill uh, Lederman, one of my partners in right. the restaurant. Yep. He told me everybody was kissing each other and jumping up and down and yelling and screaming. Yeah, that's why we were I'll there. I'll be there for the Super Bowl. <laughs> All right, that's great. Mickey, thanks for joining us, huh? Thank you, Hi. I appreciate it. Mickey Mantle. How could you really do a show about the 1961 New York Yankees without spending at least a couple of minutes talking to number seven? Mickey Mantle passed away in August of 1995, and while WFAN aired many shows from his restaurant, I don't know how many more interviews he gave to us after this one. Even as some details are fuzzy and Mantle was frankly, probably a few drinks into his evening. It's amazing to hear his voice on the phone line, and you can definitely hear some of the feelings Howie described in the first part of this episode. The conclusion of this radio show in 1991 featured some listener phone calls, including one from late Newsday baseball writer Marty Noble, another baby boomer Mantle fan turned media member. But before that, there was a short poem that Bob Shepard, the late former PA announcer, recorded, a poem he wrote about Roger Maris, and it was part of the closing elements of this anniversary show. Shortly after Roger Maris hit his uh, 61st home run, I was sitting in the press box at the public address microphone and was inspired to write this short poem, and I called it, Roger Maris Says His Prayers. They've been pitching me low, they've been pitching me tight. I've grown so nervous, tense, and pallid, but my prayers are full of joy tonight. Thank you, Lord. For Tracy Stallard. <laughs> Tracy Stallard, of course, the pitcher that gave up Roger Maris's 61st home run. That was Bob Shepard, the public address announcer at Yankee Stadium. So there is our version of the 1961 Yankees tribute. 60th Anniversary Edition. The clips of the show you've been hearing originally aired on WFAN in January 1991, hosted by Howie Rose, and produced in studio by a young man named Ian Eagle. I'm not sure what happened to him. I sure hope he found his niche somewhere in the sports broadcasting business. I hope you enjoyed this look back. I mentioned earlier the HBO film 61, directed by Billy Crystal. It's a fabulous film that I can't recommend enough. Find it on HBO streaming services. I'd also like to point out to you a show I hosted for SNY's Like We Never Left series featuring Crystal and the actors who played Madeline Maris, Thomas Jane, and Barry Pepper, as well as executive producer Ross Greenberg and one of Roger's sons, Kevin Maris. That show, in conjunction with the 20th anniversary of the film, can be found on SNY.TV under the web series tab for Like We Never Left. And please check out the archive at Odyssey and Apple Podcasts for 30 with Murdy. Check out some fun conversations like the one I had earlier this summer with Field of Dreams director Phil Robinson and many more. Make sure you hit subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.